I love that you mentioned Amazon. In November of 2020, I published an article on Coindesk and the title was Financial Advisors, Bitcoin is the next Amazon. <laughs> the framing was, one was the volatility. Um, there are a few statements actually. Uh, I hope you'll humor me and, and, I'll, and I'll read them off. This is what, ex what skeptical investors are saying. One, it's a bubble. Two, it's just one competitor among many in the field. Three, it only has a few million users. Four, it's used for crime. Five, it won't be able to scale up enough to grow into its valuation. And six, it doesn't generate cash flow and probably never will, right? And people are thinking, oh, it sounds like Bitcoin. And what I'm saying is, oh, that was Amazon in 2005. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Arcos Global Advisors or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating Bitcoin's Noise, I am joined by Andy Edstrom, a financial advisor and author of Why Buy Bitcoin. In our discussion, we cover the efforts it takes to get Bitcoin added as a position in the modern portfolio, how clients react to Bitcoin's volatility, and we also cover the recent presidential executive order on digital assets. If you're looking to better understand Bitcoin's past and its future potential as an economic network, then join us and listen in. Thanks everybody for joining. Uh, today I have with me Andy Edstrom, of early financial advisor, adopter of Bitcoin, uh, now working with Swan Bitcoin and uh, also the author of a book, as you see in the background, Why Buy Bitcoin. Uh, Andy is a great mind in the space, uh, connected in the space, and just uh, one of the early adopters. And, and, and we cross paths, uh, me being in the wealth management space, him being in the wealth management space. So I wanted to have Andy on and just kind of talk about uh, the world, uh, the crypto ecosystem and Bitcoin from that perspective. So Andy, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and, and then we'll get rolling. Yeah. Thanks, Kane. And I just want to say it's a breath of fresh air, uh, talking with a financial advisor, uh, who's done his homework with respect to Bitcoin. And, um, you know, when I published the book in 2019, uh, I, I felt very lonely in the financial advisor space. Uh, I certainly felt lonely uh, explaining it to my clients. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book, by the way, is because I sort of figured out that, you know, through 2017, I got involved in Bitcoin and crypto. And then over the course of roughly a year uh, subsequent through the bear market, I realized that, that Bitcoin was the thing and that's what I wanted to focus on. And so I knew I needed to get exposure for my clients. Uh, which meant that I was going to have to explain it to them because Bitcoin had gone from almost 20K down to 3K. And they were going to be asking a lot of questions like, hey, Andy, are you a lunatic uh, buying this thing that's down 85% that appears to be dead? <laughs> My husband so, or wife says that I should fire you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> My spouse. Throw the spouse under the bus. Um, yeah. So yeah, so so that, that's kind of uh, the environment into which I was uh, I was writing Why Buy Bitcoin. Um, it's not the only reason I I wrote it, but but that's sort of the part of the story of the book. Um, just real quick on me, you know, almost two decades now in in finance, and first decade or so was on Wall Street. Worked for Goldman Sachs, worked for a private equity fund that spun out of the Carlyle Group. And then I worked for a multi-billion dollar uh, multi-strategy hedge fund that uh, called Tenenbaum Capital that was ultimately acquired by BlackRock. Um, so that was the first half of the career. And then the second half, I joined the family business, which is wealth management. And uh, yeah, and, and so I've been living in the wealth management world for almost a decade here. And uh, as you mentioned, yeah, Bitcoin found me or I found it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I have not in my 20 year or so career ever seen a more attractive risk adjusted return opportunity as an investment, uh, as I see with Bitcoin. And that was true, uh, when I published the book in 2019 and it's still true today. And in fact, it's all the more true given facts and circumstances in the world today. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into that 
but yeah, that's that's kind of background on me, you know, as well. CFA and CFP uh, charter holder, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a investor who got into wealth management, who got into Bitcoin. So definitely no stranger to finance. Growing up in a household, it sounds like where uh, the family business was, you know, financial wealth management, however you want to define it. So seeing the markets early. Uh, seeing this new technology focused on banking and the financial markets, uh, also having seemingly a younger crowd that maybe doesn't have as much investment acumen. I mean, I think that's changed in the last couple of years, but in the earlier years, uh, it, there was a lot of kind of newer faces to the space and, and maybe Bitcoin was the first or second asset they'd really ever participated in from an investment perspective. So uh, you definitely have provided a voice of reason for a broader community over the last few years. So that's been great to see. But um, one thing you said about uh, the lonely confines of, of being on the wealth management side or in the traditional space and talking about this crazy Bitcoin thing, uh, I share that with you for um, you know, the first several years, just kind of being like, uh, I got to go on and find my internet friends to talk about this thing because I can't talk about it at work. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I guess uh, maybe extrapolate a little bit on the difficulties of that. And I can, I can chip in on some of my um, lessons and things I remember. And then a little bit more on how bringing Bitcoin is such a volatile asset uh, to the wealth management portfolio, how clients tended to uh, react or, or, or question or think about having an asset like that. Um, over these last couple of years where it's really ping-ponged all over the place. Yeah. So I suspect we had similar experiences within our firms in that, yeah, you, you do your research, you fall down the rabbit hole, as they say, um, you figure it out, uh, at least to the extent one can figure out Bitcoin. Um, and yeah, it, it becomes something you want to surface within the firm. Uh, and that can be, sometimes an uphill battle. Now, I had it easier, arguably, because my firm is small. Uh, there's only a few of us advisors. Uh, and so, you know, and we have an open investment committee. And so, yeah, it was a process of education that met with deep skepticism at first. Uh, and with time and with research, uh, you know, it's gotten, uh, the conversation has gotten easier, but it's still, um, you know, it's still sometimes a challenging conversation, I think, for, for financial advisors out there. Do you think but, that's an easier conversation um, inside the firm? And and uh, I don't want to use the word convince because, you know, you don't really want to, but you kind of have to convince people one way or the other. Uh, easier at the firm level uh, to get that approval to be something to add to portfolios or an easier conversation with the client, the prospect, uh, somebody that might want to hand over their money for you guys to, to manage and invest and understanding you're not going all in on Bitcoin yeah. in a client portfolio. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I'm, I'm not sure if my personal experience is indicative of what it's like for most folks. I might argue that it was an easier conversation with my clients, but that's because I published a book. And so when my clients came to me and said, what are you crazy with Bitcoin? I said, here you go, client. Uh, please read this first and then let's talk. Um, and the good news is, you know, I put a lot of effort into it. I hired a phenomenal editor. And so I made it accessible basically to an intelligent reader. Um, I, so, so for me, it's been probably an easier conversation with the client than it has been, uh, you know, internally with the investment committee. But that's, you know, a unique circumstance, I think, uh, for me, having, uh, having authored a book in, in the space. Um, but, but look, I still get questions from clients still to this day. I mean, they're rare, um, but still the volatility, which is the issue that you highlighted, mm -hmm. is a major issue. Um, there are, I have some clients who struggle with the notion of portfolio management and this concept that it doesn't matter what the volatility of an individual asset in the portfolio is. Correct. If you size it correctly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So yes, there is no such thing as a in, as an asset that is uninvestable due to price volatility. No such thing. There is only mm -hmm. sizing. 
And, um, and so that's, that's the approach that I take. Uh, it's some, a few clients, let's just say, uh, struggle with that concept. Most people get it. And I think at this stage where we sit in 2022, it's been around long enough and it seems to keep growing, you know, an over four year plus cycle rising in value rapidly that I think most of my clients have gotten more comfortable with the notion that, you know, this Bitcoin thing, it's just volatile. It probably will be for quite a while as it grows into its potential. And that's just the reality of it. And therefore we size accordingly. And that's one of Mark Yusko's points. He, he often brings up the volatility around Amazon. Today in 2022, yes. nobody questions why you hold or why would you want to own or how big of a position. Arguably, we have a lot of clients who are like, I want more Amazon. You're like, wait, no, nah, you're kind of in that portfolio construction means when Amazon becomes a certain percent or Bitcoin of your portfolio, that volatility starts to, to cause stress and anxiety and loss of sleep over returns uh but when you when you you can have volatile assets at the right position size at the right percentage of the portfolio and the reality is a lot of people kind of give you this feeling that they want all assets to to go up and none to go down but yeah, a properly a constructed portfolio and we've seen this year with with rough markets for the last six months or so um if that's the case then when markets do change and trends change and things happen that happen like what we're seeing, that means at some point, all of your assets are probably going to go down at the same time, which feels a lot worse than if a portion of them are going up and a portion of them are going down and a portion is going flat. But that construction and, and percentage allocation is is very important. And, and it's, um, it's hard to figure out um, and it's hard to recognize it until you've kind of been through it and seen all the different pieces work together over a couple of different cycles of, of market behavior. Uh, so. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, if everything's moving, if everything in your portfolio is moving in the same direction, uh, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> right, right. That's what they call <laughs> correlation. Exactly. Uh, that's what they call correlation. And that's, uh, that's not how it's supposed to work. Um, I love that you mentioned Amazon uh, in Let's see. It was November of 2020. I published an article on CoinDesk, and the title was "Financial Advisors, comma, Bitcoin is the next Amazon." <laughs> and you know, it, it, the framing was one was the volatility. Um, there are a few statements actually. Uh, I hope you'll humor me, and, and I'll and I'll read them off. This is what ex what skeptical investors are saying. One, it's a bubble. Two, it's just one competitor among many in the field. Three, it only has a few million users. Four, it's used for crime. Five, it won't be able to scale up enough to grow into its valuation. And six, it doesn't generate cash flow and probably never will, right? And people are thinking, oh, it sounds like Bitcoin. And what I'm saying is, oh, that was Amazon in 2005, right? Yep, yep. Well, <laughs> if you look at, yeah. at, at the first couple of years of Amazon, I think it's like 97 to 02, uh, the returns, the return profile up and down, the 95 or 86 percent, you know, fall from graces, almost mimic Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. It's eerily similar. Yeah, yeah. But if you look at uh, Peter Thiel zero to one, Amazon was a zero to one technology. I mean, technically, it was the internet and Amazon on top of it, but it was that first of its kind. No competitor could really replace it and then they win because they build that platform that everybody just flocked to and stayed on and nobody could could knock them off um and and that's kind of you know maybe it's still too early to call but it's sort of the path of bitcoin i agree and i think another interesting thing to think about is you know if that was my take or some folks's take a couple of years ago where are we today mm -hmm. i think we've arguably moved a little bit past Bitcoin is the next Amazon and more. We haven't quite reached uh, Bitcoin is the next asset class like the S&P 500 or like gold, but we're a step closer to that. In other words, yeah, it's clearly one, it's, uh, you know, it's category. It's a category winner, number one. Number two, as you know, the potential upside is still enormous. 
at least a couple orders of magnitude, right? Multiples mm-hmm. that, that, uh, that it could rise in value. And now it's role in the portfolio in an environment of much higher inflation and general uncertainty uh, about the geopolitical order. Um, I see Bitcoin continuing to march along this path and, uh, and leveling up, let's say, to a larger category where it's sort of beyond, yeah, comparing to one company like Amazon, but it really is growing into uh, its own substantial inflation-resistant asset class. Right. And that's a whole nother uh, podcast in and of itself, probably two or three hours where you could get into, okay, you've got Bitcoin, this base layer, this possibly asset class that's coming. And then you have the Lightning Network and all of that stuff, right? And so, you know, to date, I mean, Lightning's kind of caught fire the last year or so, a lot of activity, a lot going on. But to date, we've really just been focused on Bitcoin and there's no... I mean, there are applications built on top of it, but not like you and I aren't going and doing anything out in public with our Bitcoin, right? We're not going to to Target or or paying for anything at Amazon. We're not, you know, it is, is solving the issue, which is store value. And so the promise, the great promise of, of Bitcoin in the digital asset class is still to come. I mean, I think we can talk about it in a little bit uh, with the executive order. It's signed, sealed, and delivered, in my opinion. Uh, kind of nail in the coffin, like digital asset is an asset class, much like REIT or metals or uh, whatever, because it backs data and data is the new oil. Like it just, it, it drives the economy more so than oil or rates or any of that stuff. Yeah, I think uh, we definitely agree on that. I think I might amend it slightly uh, with respect to Bitcoin and kind of all the other digital assets. Although I agree with you that, you know, this world, let's say, uh, asset class, if you want to call that, or, or multiple asset classes are-, are Ecosystem. Yeah, exi- yeah, there you go, are, are here to stay. Um, I do view Bitcoin as unique and, kind of, and in a category of its own, clearly. Um, but yes, getting to, uh, you know, government oversight, um, this thing, <laughs> is not going away. Uh, If it doesn't go away, there's a good chance it's going to get a lot bigger. The uh, framing that you presented, I agree with, which is Bitcoin's potential, you know, it's serving as a store of value, but then a medium of exchange, which is another characteristic of money. Yes, it sometimes serves in that role, but not for the majority of- of It's not the best. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. And and so if you're using it as as a medium of exchange, chances are you're doing it in some environment where the money, the preferred money, isn't working well. Right. Uh, obviously, inflationary or hyperinflationary countries, for example. Turkey, Argentina, Lebanon, Russia, uh, Ukraine, like all of these. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I still keep one of these. Uh, I keep still keep one of these uh, on my desk. This is the Zimbabwe. Uh, what is it? Yeah. 500 billion or 500 trillion dollar note? I can't remember. Oh, I'm not there we smart, go. Five yeah. billion dollars. Yeah, I was about to say I'm not smart enough to quickly see all those zeros. <laughs> Too many zeros. <laughs> Too many zeros. <laughs> uh, so that's where it's being used as a medium of exchange. But yeah, as the volatility comes down with time and as more people hold it, it's much more likely to be uh, to be used for exchange. Although, you know, I don't see that happening in a mainstream way anytime soon. I mean, Bitcoin can continue to develop and rise in value for five or 10 years before it's used as a medium of exchange uh, in most cases. And yeah, I think we're, we're still at least a decade away from people using it as their unit of account, uh, at least the average person. There, there are already some, uh, some Bitcoiners that are thinking in those terms, but, uh, but it's quite rare. So yeah, it's... Um, it's it's ongoing and it's developing and taking market share from gold is the clearest use case that by the way is how i you know used it in my financial advisory wealth management practice which was with the in 2016 with the firm already having been around for 30 years roughly for the first time i allocated to an asset class 
for clients that I called hard money assets. And at that time, unfortunately, I hadn't discovered Bitcoin. It would have been nice if I'd gotten them in in 2016. Uh, didn't, you know, it was a couple of years later, but, um, but hard money assets was gold, right? And some other monetary metals like silver. Well, that category for me and my clients today, roughly speaking, is 10% of the portfolio. And it's gold and it's monetary metals. And now it's Bitcoin because Bitcoin, I think, is pretty clearly taking market share from gold. But as you suggested, if and when Bitcoin reaches its potential, it'll be a lot more than just digital gold. Um, it'll be, you know, it'll take a chunk out of uh, offshore assets. It'll take a chunk out of store value in general among real estate and stocks and, and especially bonds. When Ray Dalio tells you he'd rather own Bitcoin than a bond, you might want to pay attention. <laughs> yeah, I think Ray's so great that he's kind of like the Dallas Cowboys and uh, Notre Dame and some of these other great New York Yankees, uh, great sports teams that th there is no in, in the middle. You either love them or hate them. You can't look at his body of work and say, this is not someone that I should at least uh, put in the category of, I need to listen when they talk, whether I like him or not. Uh, I'm a fan of his work, but I know uh, for some people, there's like, ah, you know, he's been wrong. And, you know, who hasn't that's been in the investment space? Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I have a lot of respect for him uh, and I've learned a lot from him as well. So, Same. yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, credibility matters and sitting on top of the largest pile of hedge fund money uh, is creating same. it. I mean, you know, it just, founding it, creating it. Uh, I think his work's been spot on, but, uh, and I would agree with, with what you said. I just thought I'd throw that out there because I yeah. know, uh, nobody's perfect. Yeah. We, so we, uh, we listen to, uh, various differing opinions as Ray would tell us, Ray would tell us, seek out all the best, uh, right. credible and opposing opinions and, and make your own decisions. But, um, but I think just to, you mentioned regulation. Um, it's certainly an interesting time right now with the executive order that came out. Um, to be honest with you, I don't, I didn't see that much signal coming out of that, uh, you know, out of that document other than, hey, let's, let's have various branches of government study this thing and, and issue, you know, reports and opinions about it. I do agree with your perspective that, that, you know, there's no, there's little or no evidence of a knee jerk or a excessive regulatory reaction to Bitcoin and crypto. And of course, Bitcoin is the most resistant to, uh, to regulatory action because it, and I'm not a securities lawyer, uh, but my read uh, as a lay person or as a financial person is that under the uh, Howey test, Bitcoin was always and everywhere not a security. And it's been treated that way by the government and it's 13 years of existence. Now, that's not the case for most of the assets in, in crypto land, which is why I think that the case for focusing on Bitcoin as an investment for financial advisors is really strong. I mean, you just, there's a lot less to worry about uh, in terms of regulation. Um, by the same token, no pun intended, uh, I'm not sure that we're going to see a lot of clarity about other digital assets or other crypto coming out of the government because, I mean, number one, how long is it going to take for a government to respond to this executive order to basically do all the homework and, and issue the reports? And number two, you know, I, are we going to see some omnibus legislation coming out of Congress? I, I don't see it, right? It, too much gridlock, uh, too difficult to... Uh, to basically get all the ducks in order to, to get anything over the finish line, probably. Um, the good news is that it's still a bipartisan issue, number one. Number two, the industry or the ecosystem, if you want to call it that, has made its voice heard uh, without getting into details uh, you know, with respect to prior attempts at, at regulation. Um, and yeah, with something like Bitcoin, I mean, Bitcoin has existed within the regulatory framework as a commodity and as property for uh, tax purposes, according to the IRS, and is pretty clearly not a security for a number of years now. Since so, like six, 16, maybe, I think it was the first classification, I, th I think, if I recall. 
Yeah, I was thinking even earlier than that. You're probably right. I was thinking like 13 or 14. I'm probably wrong. I'd have to go back and look. I just that's right, but it's been just, a long time. Yeah, and and I think you know on the executive order, my thoughts are there are three fundamental pieces that people should have paid attention to, and I think a lot of times um, because it wasn't issued as a meme, the community misses it. Um, where if you look at how traditional investors work, even if they're technical, I'm a technical guy but they start at some point, they get down to what are the fundamental drivers for this thing mm-hmm. and what has to happen for it to work. What, if these things happen, it will just completely sideswipe it. But the, I think it was 2020, I think it was 2020. It may have been 2019, but it was in August of July where the OCC said, okay, banks can now hold digital assets. That was a 360 because they were like, oh, cursed is this thing and we can't call it digital asset or cryptocurrency or Bitcoin. We're going to call it blockchain. And that was the whole Jamie Dimon story of the FUD. And so for them to come out and say, you can hold digital assets was game changer. So that's, okay, we're admitting we're wrong. We're not going to say that we're wrong, but we're admitting if we don't allow this thing to grow and succeed, that we might get somehow put out of existence. And then in 2021, I think it was January, they came out and said, OCC again said, these stable coin things, these wizard coins that happen on the internet and this, you know, crypto technology that's so bad for illicit purposes uh, can be used to, uh, in place of, by banks, in place of Fedwire, ACH, and SWIFT, oh, by the way, which is the technology that the U.S. just sanctioned Russia with. So um, that was a huge acknowledgement for me. That was like, okay, you know, who knows what happens in the regulation space? Don't play in it. Uh, they do have power that none of us can control. Uh, but that's an admission that in some way, shape, or form, this asset class, this thing, whatever it ends up being in 10 years, is is, is moving forward. And then effectively in 2018, uh, there were the Treasury, Department of Treasury put out a 220-page report on basically how archaic our banking system was and the role that we needed to get to so that financial technologies could innovate on banking, which for whatever reason, wasn't mentioned in the executive order. Um, So a lot of that work that claims it needs to be done, at least there's 220 pages of effort that was already done Mm -hmm. uh, that lays out a lot of those things. So I, I felt like I took it as almost a, you know, whatever's a 720 stance on the, this thing's drug money, illicit purposes to, hey, uh, we're waking up now. We're going to pay attention. Not sure exactly how it shakes out, but we have to kind of like move forward with this thing to maintain global financial leadership. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And in some respects, it's a narrowing of the arbitrage between the public perception of this thing versus the actual government policy or where government policy is likely to go. In other words, it's, as you said, I mean, it's clear evidence that the risk of extremely punitive uh, regulation or prohibition in the United States is like near zero. Right Now, I already felt that way a few years ago before these orders came out. And the reason was, Number one, uh, this is innovation, right? This is the next uh, level of the internet. This is wind the clock back, I don't know, 30 years or whatever it was when there was some discussion of treating hosting a website as being the same as a broadcaster, right? Right, right. There was a time yeah. when there was a discussion about, hey, if you want to put your website up, uh, you're going to have to register with the S or with the FCC, right? The Federal Communications Corporation, which would have been a ridiculous, uh, a ridiculous move to make. Kind of like a $600 payment deal. Yeah, exactly. You're running (laughs) a node. Now you got to send, you got to send everybody a 1099. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting parallel. That's, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, So yeah. So the, so the point is, you know, the internet grew up in America and American companies dominated the internet because it wasn't Mm overregulated. And we had the same opportunity 
here. And I think enough people in power uh, are familiar with that precedent uh, from earlier that, that they're unlikely to, to mess this thing up. And then the second thing is, uh, you know, when people talk about prohibition, I always remind them that uh, if you think that people are going to get excited about taking their uh, taking away their booze, taking away their drink, imagine how they're going to feel if you try to take away the one refuge that they have uh, with respect to holding on to their purchasing power in an inflationary environment. Oh, and by the way, at least with something like alcohol, it's physically there and you can confiscate it. Uh, mm -hmm. When you can hold a private key in your brain, uh, it becomes much harder to, uh, to affect any uh, prohibition. And for that reason alone, there's very little risk that, uh, that we're ever gonna end up in that kind of an environment, especially in America, where we do believe in things like personal rights and freedoms and uh, rights to personal property. Yeah, I agree with that. And for listeners, maybe that that haven't gone as deep down the rabbit hole, the private key is just your seed phrase. So 12 or 24 words that picked at random when you uh, create a wallet, um, it'll go through a process and give you these words. If you write them down, if you don't write them down and you lose those words, well, you know, it is a little bit different. You can't just go knock on the door of your bank and say like, Hey, can you help me with my private keys? Like you, your money's gone. And that's the fear for, for most people, um, um, having to deal with that. But as you mentioned in, in the world, uh, that it is today in 2022, where it's a little bit crazy and we've got, uh, nations kind of at each other's throats and maybe you got to pick up and move and from one country to another, or from one state to another, or whatever it ends up being the case, um, and not being doom and gloom, but but you could leave without your wallet and have those seed phrases in your head, the keys, uh, or on a piece of paper or whatever, get somewhere else, get a new wallet, plug them in and poof, your money is back. We've not had that capability. Um, and it does uh, lead to that freedom. Uh, but with the cost of you having to be the one responsible and and not being able to point the finger at an exchange or something else um, that, hey, you know, some of my money went missing. You need to give it back. Back to the regulation piece. I'm personally not uh, anti-regulation. I, I, I don't like over-regulation, um, but I think in financial services or, or anywhere where you have piles of money, so we'll call it financial services, the natural tendency for humans to become greedy and do things where regulatory bodies should step in is needed at a higher level than in other areas of the markets. If no better example, the London metals exchange example, that's a classic example of, you know, regulation oversight, meaning somebody wasn't paying attention. And then once the issue was brought to the forefront, they didn't make the, uh, person doing the criminal activities pay and they kind of let them off. And, and so we've got this weird place regulation. We need to have enough to keep people from doing bad things, but if we have them, we also need to enforce them. And I think currently in some of our markets, we, we have more regulation than needed, but then we don't act when it, when it's needed. So. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you uh, completely Kane. And to take it back to Bitcoin and crypto, uh, Crypto or digital assets is a space that is rife with scams and bad yes. behavior. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it's worse than most areas. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty confident to say that crypto is worse than any other asset investment area that I've seen in my career with respect to uh, the bad behavior and the scams. And so that's one of the reasons I focus on Bitcoin is Bitcoin is, to my mind, in a different category with respect to uh, the behavior of the participants. It's not being marketed as something that it isn't. Uh, and, you know, it has actually achieved a level of decentral decentralization that makes it credible as uh, as a hard money that has a fixed supply. And so... It stands in stark contrast to uh, all the scams going on in crypto land, which should be uh, enforced against. I mean, yeah. to be honest, in my opinion, the you know we haven't seen enough 
nearly enough enforcement against bad mm-hmm. actors in the crypto space. Right. That's part of why I steer clear of it. Uh, and uh, and it, yeah, I agree with you. It needs to happen for consumer protection uh, purposes. I think that the the world will be better off for more and better regulation in that area. And then with something like Bitcoin, yeah, you have to be careful. Um, it's trade-offs with respect to, uh, you know, to con- consumer protection. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, but those are my thoughts. Just one quick point. I mean, from that crypto view to see where it could go wrong is like, all you have to do is just look at what's happened to social media. It's, it's very fundamentally, principally, it's very similar. Oh, this is a great idea. Look what we can do with technology. We can connect the world, make it a greater place. While true, eventually greed comes through. Look what we can do with all this data. Right. And then we get into the mess that we've seen. So that is the reason why when I say I'm not anti-regulation, I'm pro-regulation, but I'm not pro-over-regulation because I think the right amount of just fear for those bad actors you know, keeps a better ecosystem for us all for such a good technology um, that really solves a, a problem from a monetary standpoint that, that we face today. So um, on another note, let's talk about Swan. What, what are you doing there? Maybe share a little bit about Swan with the listeners and, and what you think is important there. And maybe some of the things that you see coming down the pike with Bitcoin and, and Swan or other players uh, that, that, have you excited about the next handful of years? Yeah. So Swan is a Bitcoin only company. And for a couple of years now, Swan has been helping people get access to Bitcoin. Um, the first, well, the first product was, was a service called Give Bitcoin, which was designed to help people send Bitcoin to a friend. The second product was a dollar cost averaging, you know, saving in Bitcoin, you know, putting whatever, 50 bucks a week or a thousand bucks a week or whatever the right number is for you, automatically sucking the, the dollars out of your checking account, putting it into Bitcoin so that you don't have to think about timing markets because 99% of us are not able to time markets. Um, uh, 99.9 probably. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, easily. Right? Uh, yeah, uh, especially when you take taxes into consideration. But um so that was the second product. The third product was uh, private client services. So we have a team of Bitcoin experts who help high net worth and ultra high net worth folks buy Bitcoin as well as educate them. And by the way, that's the whole ethos of the company is, is education first. Um, mm-hmm. We have numerous people on the team who have published books about Bitcoin, um, as well as a bunch of big podcasters, uh, folks who write a lot of articles. Um, just a really unparalleled bench of Bitcoin ed- educators. Um, and I don't know of any company in the world uh, that has as much high quality Bitcoin education content uh, coming from its team as Swan does. I, so- I would uh, just to interject just for a second, I, w- I would definitely back that up. I mean, the quality of, of research education and the people like yourself putting out uh, that information to educate users that, you know, no matter where they are on the spectrum of knowledge and understanding of Bitcoin, it definitely uh, is quality. Well, I appreciate uh, those kind words, Kane, and uh, I'm glad we're uh, I'm glad we're delivering what we claim. Uh, so, so yeah, so so my involvement with uh, Swan uh, came in part because I needed a tool, a product to put my clients into Bitcoin. And I looked around and I couldn't find what I wanted. <laughs> and so I saw an opportunity in the market to help launch that product. And so that's what's going on right now. That's Swan Advisor Services. And what we're doing is we're providing for financial advisors a service to put custodied outright Bitcoin. So not a paper wrapped product like a hedge fund or like the Bitcoin Trust or like the ETFs but actual third-party custody coins in the client portfolio, including with what a financial advisor needs, right? Which is the ability to monitor all the client accounts, transact in them, uh, see that transaction history and track cost basis, uh, you know, 1099 issuance, 
crucially, uh, plugging in via API to feed data into financial advisors' portfolio management software so they can see uh, real time what's going on with, uh, with the asset in the client's portfolios. And therefore, they can rebalance, right? They can make purchases and sales as necessary. Um, our view is it should be primarily purchases. Uh, you know, I personally see Bitcoin as a core component for the long run, you know, at least this decade uh, and probably much longer uh, for clients. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, but, you know, we're realistic about advisors are going to need to, to rebalance as appropriate uh, when the price moves. So that's what's going on uh, over at Swan and it's Bitcoin only. It's a focus on Bitcoin for various reasons. Yeah, some of which were already mentioned. Uh, it's actually a hard money asset. It's actually decentralized. It doesn't have securities regulation risk, at least not any significant amount. And so that's what, uh, that's what we're launching right now. And we've been onboarding uh, investment advisors, financial advisors uh, in their client, and their clients uh, already. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about it before, so we won't go into detail um, here, but it really is in the ecosystem, the broader, let's just call it cryptocurrency ecosystem, inclusive of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all these other things. You have Bitcoin, which you guys are Bitcoin only. There's a number of Bitcoin only uh, firms being set up and built out and a lot of stuff being built, but it, it really kind of solves that monetary problem of lack of a savings mechanism. The other portion, the crypto portion of the ecosystem and then you kind of have this stable coin which is a little bit more crypto but kind of its own like euro dollar like thing going on but that is more like technology innovation aimed at banking and delivering value right and and with that you do have just massive moonshots but also massive crashes uh that kind of get to wherever we end up being in in 10 or 15 years and and Bitcoin has some of that too, but because it's security focused, security first, uh, stability is kind of like DOS, was the ultimate computer system. Um, and when push came to shove and everything failed, it was still running, but it never like had all the you know cool GUIs and stuff uh, that that uh, you know it's kind of what was built on top of it. Windows ultimately ended up doing, but. It always that was that reliable thing, and and in the early days you could build stuff on top of it, um, and and build around it, and that's kind of what's going on in Bitcoin. So, to me, that's the big difference. Um, and you know, look at any industry; you have one or two big competitors, three or four competitors, and people argue over which one's the best. Um, and and at, at the end of that, it just comes down to personal choice. Um, but what do you think in the next few years? Kind of are big that that just from an industry perspective that you're kind of looking at or you're, you know, kind of anxiously awaiting to come to the forefront, uh, whether it's Bitcoin specific or whether it's things that you focus on regulatory wise or just infrastructure, uh, anything that, that you're kind of watching there. Yeah. I think the main thing that's likely to happen for Bitcoin is that it just keeps growing. Um, you know, I don't make, specific price predictions, especially not in the, in the short term. Uh, I do think that with every week and month that goes by, people are realizing that holding a liquid inflation-proof, uh, uncensorable, you know, unconfiscatable asset that's global and that is, we talked about, can be moved with ease uh, securely is really important. And it's, you know, it's never been more relevant than it is today with consumer price inflation, official numbers at 8% and rising. Official, <laughs> official. <laughs> That's right, exactly, official. Real numbers, certainly the de double <laughs> yeah. digits, I'm sure. Real numbers, just, just collect your receipts for a month and then compare them to things that you bought <laughs> last year i like that technique i wish i had i wish i had been saving my uh, my grocery receipts smart man um so uh so yeah it's it's just gonna continue to gain in relevance um i think that institutional adoption comes in long waves 
and different institutions had different timelines. So, you know, one of the reasons I think that we see recently still high correlation between Bitcoin and say the NASDAQ is because the quote unquote institutions that have adopted Bitcoin so far are really just hedge fund traders. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. so when it's risk off, you know, or if those guys have made a nice trade, if they read Paul Tudor Jones's uh, great monetary inflation thesis when Bitcoin was at 10K and they bought some and it went to 50 and they made 5X, you know, they said nice trade and went home. And, when, and on that note, right quick, they don't fit the mentality of the culture of Bitcoin. They have very um, high time preference. Yes. And so it's, I'm here to make a buck. And when I make three, I'm out. And right. so, um, you exactly. know, the, it is true that the community is kind of like, wait till Wall Street comes, wait till Wall Street comes. Well, the unintended consequence is that when Wall Street comes, they bring an entirely different behavior. Uh, and we could go on for days on that, so I won't, won't get it off, yeah. but that is an yeah, important point. That, that's right. And But the good news is that there are other institutions as well. There are pensions. There are endowments. There are insurance companies. And actually, we have seen all of those categories buy Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Now, it's been in small amounts so far, right? They're just getting their feet wet, How and, and they move very slowly. But... Since the you know the, the the seal has been broken, you know the the first guys have jumped over the fence from those uh, major categories of institutions, uh, and given inflation, government policy, you know I'm I'm pretty confident that we're going to see ongoing adoption from those types of institutions which don't behave as the hedge funds. They don't right. uh, they don't trade actively. In fact. They may be counter cyclical or counter momentum in the sense that they are rebalancing, right? They're they're maybe taking uh, some money off the table slowly if price goes dramatically up, but also they're buyers in the trough. At least they should be. And, um, and insurance guys are never the first to the party. Um, so when they're coming on board, you probably want to again not financial advice, but you probably want to be already positioned (laughs) right and that's what's so interesting about for example mass mutual right Right. insurance company that bought for their uh own account as well as made the investment in in nidig right which is Mm -hmm. is flourish yeah yeah exactly so um anyway so it's coming and then meanwhile uh people are learning why bitcoin is important they're seeing that hundreds of million, you know, hundred million dollars of donations can be made more or less instantly to Ukrainians defending their country. They're seeing that Bitcoin is, uh, is hard to confiscate uh, and maybe a way to transmit uh, value even when governments are doing strange things and uh, perhaps not uh, going through the, the usual channels or obeying the usual rules for uh, for, uh, yeah, with respect to cutting people off from the financial system. Um, so there's all these reasons that, that Bitcoin is just becoming more and more relevant over time. And uh, I think it's just a story of continued adoption. Um, we're actually really pretty low on the, the adoption S-curve, right? The technology yeah, adoption right. curve. Um, one view I think that may be different from, from some folks is Getting back to the executive order that you mentioned, that cites something like I want to say fifteen percent maybe of American uh, Americans own crypto, right? Uh, and I saw some data that came out of the Grayscale uh, survey that indicated I don't know twenty something percent. I think it was maybe twenty five percent of of, of uh, households had exposure. Yeah. Okay. Which sounds like a lot, um, but buying ten bucks worth of Bitcoin you know, is not adoption to my mind. To my mind, adoption of Bitcoin is uh, storing a significant portion of your net worth in Bitcoin. Yeah. And so by that standard, I don't know, maybe we're at two or 3% adoption. I mean, it's hard to know, but it's still early enough in the game. And we're in that sweet spot between adoption is still relatively low and has huge growth potential. But as you've highlighted, 
we've mostly run the gauntlet in terms of the regulatory risk already. And so, yeah, risk adjusted, uh, I see still Bitcoin as, as the best uh, investment opportunity that I've ever seen in my career. That was true a few years ago. It's still true at current prices. And plus you add in the fact that it's a crucial inflation hedge, or it's a really important component of your inflation hedge bucket in the portfolio. Um, all these reasons make me think that uh, the future is bright for Bitcoin adoption in general, as well as uh, with respect to rate of return as an investment in the future. Yeah, I agree. And, and not a lot I would add there that that wouldn't take us on for another 45 minutes. Um, so, I mean, I think all that's awesome. I think the the points that, that you brought on today, Andy, are spot on. Uh, hopefully listeners kind of learn something or pique their curiosity enough that they want to go up and, and find out more about the asset class, about Bitcoin, about uh, yourself in general, about Swan or, or any other things that we mentioned. So uh, assuming that we at least have one person that listened that might want to do that, where would they find you and, and, and where would you point them to in terms of resources that, that might benefit them? Yeah, of course. Thanks for that, Kane. So, uh, you know, for Swan, uh, swanbitcoin.com, uh, swanbitcoin.com forward slash advisor for advisor services uh, product. Um, Twitter is Edstrom Andrew. That's my handle. And then my book is uh, Why Buy Bitcoin, which can be found on Amazon. And uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, talking with uh, an, an intelligent and uh, educated financial advisor uh, like you, Kane, who has uh, clearly done his homework uh, on Bitcoin. Well, I appreciate it, Andy. And um, the same to you. I mean, uh, you, you beat a lot of people to the punch, so I just try to keep up. But um, thanks for thanks for coming on today. Pleasure's mine.